Hello and welcome to this week's Statsman Podcast with me, James York, and... Ted Knudsen. Hi, James. Ho, 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 Ted. It's uh, the last podcast before Christmas or something. For, well, for you anyway. I might see if I can rope Ben in at some point over the Christmas period, but you're off You're next. welcome to rope people. <laughs> you're you're, off, you're off, off away next week, so here we are. Been a good, Cowboy James. Been a good year, Ted. Been a good year. Roping little doggies, the <laughs> podcast with him. We're not going to do it like a ten-year retrospective. Like I think probably every other like media organization is going to be like, "How was your decade?" And spend. Uh, yeah, that was like the the podcast at the at the conference. <laughs> we were just like point, you know, yeah. talking about the olden days. Uh, yeah, so I <clears throat> we're actually as a family taking some time away for the next couple of weeks, stepping away from the business as well for um, a period of time, which hasn't happened almost at all this year. So. That will be nice. Uh, yeah, so I'm leaving you alone during the most festive, busiest time of the Premier League season. <laughs> yeah, we'll have lots to talk about when we get back. But there's plenty to talk about now because you've, you've canvassed some questions from the audience just to mix it up a little bit. It's been a couple of months since we've done one of those. Uh, and yeah, again, no movies this week. Um, I don't think I've watched anything. So, But we have got, what's the, what's the first question, Ted? Christmas. Something to do with Christmas, wasn't it? Yeah, we figured we'd sort of settle into the season here. Actually, this so is like six questions us. in one. <laughs> but it's, it talks a little bit about you know Christmas stuff. So if you're not if you're not up on the Christmas season, uh, you know maybe your festivist holiday, some Hanukkah, uh, you know whatever else you're into. Anyway, um, so someone asked us, what are your Christmas Day routines? Do you do presents first, board games in the evening, a big walk, Christmas lunch at noon or the late afternoon? Uh, showered and ready or pajamas all day boozing at 8 a.m is uh is kind of the hardcore option here <laughs> what does what your christmas routine look like James? uh get up but stupidly early o'clock because i have a daughter who's young enough to be really excited at 6 a.m or whatever it is mm-hmm. and then you just open some presents and you kind of sit around a bit and then eventually kind of lunch gets made and various family turn up and um have lunch probably mid-afternoon. Normally go around to my brother-in-law's in the evening because he has a little kind of get-together and, yeah, play some daft game, whatever crazy crap he's come up with. And have a few uh, beverages and finally get it all behind you and get to the real Christmas as a sports fan. Boxing Day. Boxing Day, yes. <laughs> That's my Christmas Day. It's funny, because I used to work Boxing Day, so a job where I work Boxing Day, and, um, uh, like, and I don't now. And like it's it's still it's still like well do you, would you, do you want to go out for lunch no I don't want to go out for lunch I want <laughs> do you, what do you want to do I'm st- sitting at home there's a lot of sports to watch although getting into NBA last year there was a load of NBA on Christmas Day oh so, yeah it goes on forever yeah that was on Christmas Day so <laughs> it was like you know when everyone's ever gone to bed about kind of ten o'clock it was like oh okay, cool I'll just watch some NBA so yeah there yeah, you go. so like you you get the the Premier League stuff that starts like first thing and then you get NBA that goes on with a quadruple header typically as well it's uh it's a huge day as I mean, I so back in the U.S., um, you know, like I also bet on college football and um, on Saturdays, and then you would have like the full slate, or you start with the full slate of uh, of soccer as well, or Premier League or whatever. And like those days were amazing because like basically you you do the the morning stuff, you'd watch the the football, and then you go into like the pregame shows, and then like all day of college football, and so like the every. Every weekend from September through to to nearly Christmas time was was incredible as a single or or individual without children. <laughs> and then, um, like you, I worked in gambling for a long time, and so like I worked every Boxing Day, every single one of them. Uh, so you do like the Christmas stuff, but have to have to keep it a bit in check, unlike some people, or like you know show up with a wicked hangover at five a.m. or whatever the hell time I started. Uh, back in the Caribbean, um, but so like that relates a little bit to English people do Christmas differently. Um, like you guys usually have big boozy Christmases, and uh, my family like had it different in that we would do um, Christmas Eve at my grandparents' house <clears throat> for ages and ages and ages, uh, and they had seven kids, so like in a small house, and like that was like always crazy crowded and stuff like that. Uh, so I was used to that, and then we would kind of just have a, a quiet Saturday. Or not Saturday, but uh, a quiet holiday on the Christmas Day. You'd still wake up early. I had two younger sisters, so they were always excited by that. Nowadays, um, the weird part is be- I mentioned the U.S. because like we travel like every other year, and so we don't really have a, a tradition. It-, it changes based on yeah. on what country we're in. 
And then this year is um, is our 10th anniversary from moving away from Curacao and the Netherlands Antilles, uh, where my son was born and where we spent um, a long time, <clears throat> well, a long time, like three, four, five years uh, living there. And we're going back um, to be there for New Year's and Christmas just happens to, to be part of it, but also just absolutely desperate for like some sunlight and some warmth. <laughs> and Can't be so, bad. Can't be bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, like my kids wake up and they, they love to open presents and we do it whatever continent we happen to be on. Um, How are you going to get all and, the presents out there? What are you going to do? This is, this is a logistical shh, nightmare. Shh. Don't, yeah. Don't, don't worry about that part. Uh, <laughs> there are no presents this year, kids. Yes. <laughs> Santa has forgotten you. He, he left them at home. There's a lump of coal. Yeah. It, it's, it's like a shipment when you get home. But meanwhile, here's the beach. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good, good job selling that, Ted. <laughs> Mate, the four-year-old I think is not going to tolerate that one, but we'll figure it out. We got a we got a few days left. Yeah, cool. All right. Uh, any, any other Christmas cheer or insert there before we get down to the hardcore football? No, I, I think you know, as a football fan, Boxing Day is the best part of Christmas. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, it's pretty fun. I, as a family man, you know, I like Christmas just fine. Yeah. No, I, I don't mind. I mean, when I, before I before having a daughter, I just wasn't bothered about Christmas at all. It didn't didn't. You know, in my Grinchy-like way, it wasn't something I was particularly interested in. And then you have children, and it's like, well, yeah, it's all right, isn't it? It's good fun. So, anyway, uh, right, what was our first question? Uh, is Carrie Kane better than Dominic Calvert-Lewin? Hmm. I thought this was a good excuse to talk about Calvert-Lewin and not about Harry Kane. Oh, really? So maybe we can just... <laughs> Focus on that part of the question, James. I quite like Howard Lewin because I, like, I I just I just like the way he, he puts himself about. Um, if I'm going to be critical from it, like what 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 do I want my striker to do? I want him to take more shots. But this season, look, I think he's taking quite good shots, isn't he? So it kind of like it makes up for that a little bit. Uh, it, His stats are beefy, dude. He's like he's only on like two-ish shots per game, but they are quite you know are quite good quality ones at the moment. So if he can keep that up. This is the thing. Oh, we were talking about this yesterday, wasn't weren't we? Like um, in the office about you know if if teams like yeah because was it Arsenal one three one had ten shots weren't they? And it was like if if ever was there you know is there a team out there that's ever like really prioritised like shot quality so they the, so the shot volume was just not there and actually successfully done that. And I'm not sure really there was. You thought one of I think one of Pep's teams might have been a quite low volume and stuff. So I mean it's the classic. Um, yeah, classic kind of story around around strikers. You kind of want more than two shots, but if the shots are only good shots, then you're gonna forgive them a little bit. If they're just shaving, if if the extra shot they've shaved off is just some ding from forty yards, then so what? So it's true. Uh, so like regarding Calvert Lewin, uh, one of the best shot qualities of of anybody in the Premier League right now. Uh, which means that he's his expected goals are about half a goal a game. <laughs> yeah, uh, the other. Which is yeah, super strong. Like you're only shooting just over two times a, a match, but each one is like a 25 percenter. Like that's pretty good. Um, <clears throat> decent at pressure. One of his big strengths is is in the air, and he's a mismatch for just about every center back out there. Um, having seen him trounce Arsenal at various times through <laughs> the last two years, so yeah, I'm physically very strong. What I find interesting is like this um, his sort of radar shape and his, his statistical profile looks a bit like Sebastian Allaire, yeah, yeah. except without the the XG assisted, which is actually pretty important. If you've got low sh- shot volume, but you're always a danger to pass to somebody that's open, like that's amazing because now like you know you're you're basically impossible to defend. You take really good shots, and if you're not taking those shots, then you're setting up somebody else. For pretty good ones, uh, he's lacking that. But you know, if you need somebody that's big in the air, uh, you know, a bit like Duncan Ferguson, perhaps. <laughs> hey, yeah, like, he might, would, would he want might to get have. some minutes here, mightn't he? I mean, I'm looking at his shot map from last year, and it's um, it's not not as impressive. In fact, the shot quality is much lower. A lot of headers. Um, in fact, it, it, it's quite a scarce shot map. Like literally everything from the penalty spot inwards, from bar for about one shot. I think it's a header. <laughs> so he's good. Yeah, so it's a really unusual change in in profile here, right? Like so so last year it's like a ton of headers and not that many through balls. This year a lot of through balls, more shots with feet and then just yeah. a couple of headers. Like that's a huge change and and I'm intrigued by cuz like usually teams that have the same head coach, you know, year to year 
don't have that profile change. So I'm curious. Yeah, like, I don't watch enough Everton no, to explain this one. I mentioned it before because Riley was on about it on his podcast about Everton, like head, the, head, the amount of their attack being headers is like really, really high for the league. So, I'm, so to see Calvert Lewin not being, you know, the, the guy for that. I know Richarlison's, you know, scored a few, good few headers, and his shot uh, shot map always kind of like skews towards like loads of headers. But yeah, so in- interesting. I mean, we're only looking at you know a handful of games, I guess, and you know he's only taking twenty one shots uh, this season. So it'll be interesting to see how it progresses. But you know, even with this kind of like relatively small sample, we can see a difference year to year in in like the kind of shape of uh, Calvert Lewin's shot profile, and it looks better. Uh, like as you say, like yeah, we've got you know more f- kind of footed shots and getting onto through balls and stuff so if he can if he can kind of like maintain uh, that to some degree I mean someone like Vardy's the king of this you know refine his shot profile and it's like right okay he's mainly just good shots now and loads loads off through balls you know you can all imagine Vardy sprinting through and getting on the end of things uh, you know obviously Calvert Newton's not going to have the pace of Vardy but it's it's an interesting kind of change I'm, I'm reasonably encouraged about him um, I think I was kind of I'm just he's had good sets for a long time. It's a bit of a shame that he didn't get more playing time somewhere along the way yeah. and, and sort of maybe get some more reps. Uh, I do think we learned at the weekend that Harry Kane is still good at shooting from range. <laughs> yeah, he said afterwards, he said, actually, oh, I haven't had, you know, I don't score many from range. And I was like, in my mind, I can remember like a few seasons ago, dinging a few. <laughs> You've in- always been fantastic at yeah, it. Yeah, well, and you actually look <laughs> at it, last couple of seasons, he hasn't at all. And there was a point last mm. season when where he shot. Uh, uh, volume had gone down, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, what's happening?" And it was, it felt like, yeah, it, it seemed seemed like he kind of like cut out the long shots, which was interesting. Because um, I think sixteen, seventeen, maybe he got five from outside the box, and then last season I think he got one, and the season four I think he only got one. So he certainly kind of like, for whatever reason, because he's always been able to like beat a man to create enough space for a shot. But he seemed, it felt like he stopped doing it. Anyway, against Burnley, he had all the space in the world and kind of drove into it and then just larruped it and it flew in. Uh, and then- so now that he, he's taken six shots a game, do you think that he's a coach killer? Just didn't want to take it, <laughs> wanted to see Poke gone. Is that, is that what we're doing? Harry Kane, coach killer? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I don't know. Everything was just a bit wrong there. It's, 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 <laughs> I'm just saying things like get myself in trouble here. I'm, it's hard. It's, it's hard to know with Kane because again, you look at you look at his his profile still, uh, and it's just you know there aren't that many shots. The quality's not not quite there yet. You know, you just would like a little bit more all round. I think I don't know. First six eight weeks of the season are probably just kind of they're going to sink everyone on Tottenham's numbers to some degree. Um, it, it, it is going to be interesting going forward how it, how it pans out and you know the two goals he scored at the weekend were you know not easy chances um, but I said it before on the podcast you know the, the one thing you know a player such as he, he's got is, is finishing ability it's just a question of whether he can get those shots if he can then he'll probably hit the target and score goals but you know yeah and, and maybe he's on the other side of of you know his his potential peak, or maybe you know he's he's coming back into it and he's healed up enough and gotten to to a point where he's moderately the, healthy and, yeah. and able to perform again. Yeah, he hasn't been injured for a little bit, little bit of time. And the same with Dele Ali. Like Dele Ali was in and out all last season, and you know we've seen him score goals recently, like play quite well. Uh, again, Mourinho's kind of empowered the the son uh, Lucas Mora. Uh, kind of speedy guys around Kane and Ali, so you know he's, he hasn't brought Lachetlo Celso in, hasn't used Ericsson so much, so it's you know very much kind of like pace and power kind of ideas going on here, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of see how that's going. But yeah, Calvert Lewin, I I think him and Tom Davis, I think both I thought would spend more time in the Everton side, but kind of uh, missed out a bit just through the relentless signings that Everton have made over the last couple of years, and it's meant that their squad's been. You know what's what is the Everton team? I think Tottenham have had that problem a little bit. In you know when when they haven't had injuries, it's like what is the Tottenham's first team? What's Everton's first team? You know you know Liverpool's first team. You know Leicester's first but, team. But now that Spurs just score three goals a game, <laughs> at least like, Mourinho comes along and suddenly they're like, oh yeah, three goals a game is what we're going to score. That's great. Like cool. The thrilling. We've got fresh era. legs. Haven't really pressed the entire season, so yeah, might as well use it in attack. The thrilling era of Jose Mourinho. <laughs> yeah, it's um. Well, we'll see. How, we'll see on that one. Let's move to another question. What's What's next? Okay. Uh, okay. Someone said, on a serious note, Oliver K had some unique inputs on the second coming of British managers. 
they discuss that more and more clubs are looking for managers that hope and hope that resonate with fans, and thus Vieira could be considered even when his record is okay. And then Oliver Kay actually replied to this. Uh, he's a journalist on the Athletic, if you don't know. Uh, it's interesting, I think maybe it's a fad, but it's something I've heard from various different clubs wanting to find something that can unite and galvanise the club. Not a question of tub thumping, hashtag passion, but it's something clubs are looking for on uh, on top of the ability to coach. Uh, you got any thoughts on that one, Ted? I've got, I've got some, but you're welcome just to step in if you want. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all cyclical, and we kind of talk about this stuff. Like the Premier League's tough, and you know, managers kind of have a, a lifespan. Our head coaches do, and usually that lifespan is somewhere between two and four years, maybe five years, uh, even for like the best of them. You know, you kind of like wear through a squad and they get tired of you. Um, but like it's super competitive too. So like you're always looking for somebody that can help, you know, ratchet you up a bit higher than you should be potentially, or certainly not someone who ratchets you lower. Uh, many times, you know, Premier League clubs have looked abroad in recent years to try and find um, <clears throat> uh Coaches that have success that are clearly good at coaching. But the big thing that gets lost in all of this and often like the nuance of this passionate English manager or you know British manager that can coach the players and motivate them is like the whole job of a coach is to communicate and usually to teach. And if you can't communicate, then like you're probably not going to be very good at the job. You know, <laughs> like that's, that's, that's just like factual. Um, and to me... You know, part of it is is you know, being able to communicate fairly well in the language. It doesn't have to be amazing. Uh, part of it is like some EQ elements to be able to read the squad and understand it. Um, and you know, plenty of it is, is tactical. And like, how do I I not only um, you know, talk about it, but can I derive the insight? Can I get it either from my my staff to then in, deliver it to the squad in ways that they can digest it or not? So it's a very complicated you know role. Um, you know, it's a little bit Brexity to talk about like the second coming of the British manager. Like literally, the two managers to make the two English managers to make the knockout stages of the Champions League in this decade. Oh Christ! Can you name them? Uh, no, I don't think I can. I can't. Even, too early in the morning for me to. Well, one of them was last night, <laughs> unprompted. Oh yeah, lamps. And the other one. Yeah. Tottenham coach. Tottenham, English Tottenham coach. Mm. Mine's gone blank. <laughs> Tim Sherwood. Unbelievable. Surely not. Do you remember a Gareth Bale goal, perhaps? Uh, a Redknapp. Enter Milan. Redknapp. Yeah. 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 Bloody Redknapp. Long, long time ago. But that, that's like crazy, right? Only two. Yeah, that no, was like 2010-11 yeah, is, yeah. is what I what I saw. Mm. So assuming that the, the source is right, which I assume they are. Um, yeah, like that's, that's kind of amazing. Um, but like, you know, how often are they finishing in the top four? Like, not particularly. Uh, David Moyes, I guess, was like the closest British manager to to be in that space. Not not too distant times. Um, <clears throat> ooh, ooh. Uh, moving on from this. I, oh wait, we didn't get your your thoughts, My thoughts on this. Yeah, I I think it's I think it's one of these things. Like, you know, I was interested that Watford went with Nigel Pearson because it's like Watford have very much got you know got kind of continental coaches in repeatedly. And it feels like, yeah, maybe they're like, let's just try something different. That whole let's just try something different where you flip between, you know, um, a non-English or non-British manager and a British manager. We've seen that happen, I think, in a variety of clubs. And I'm not I'm not convinced, personally, that, um, that uh, you know, what Oliver said here was that, you know, that, that various clubs want to find someone to unite and galvanise the club. I'm... I'm not wholly convinced that that's the manager's job, um, or you know, maybe that you know the man, the head coach's job is 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 more about running the team. I guess you you know you see someone like Klopp maybe, and you think like, oh yeah, we want we want that kind of person in this in this in this role. But I think you know Klopp's obviously sort of slight uh, unique in that regard, in in so far as he's kind of like really engaged with. I guess, you know, Liverpool as a place, you know, the politics of the place and, you know, everything around it. And I get, I don't know, I think, I think you, you luck into someone like that. You, you know, you're not necessarily going to find many, many managers that are going to do that. Communication, as you say, is definitely important. Um, and we do hear stories of like various managers, you know, spending time learning English, you know, within that half an hour in the Premier League. And why not? Because let's be honest, there's a lot of good contracts, a lot of money you can earn here. And, you know, a lot of kudos, you know, you spend some time managing in the Premier League. I imagine that sets you up for all manner of jobs that you you know may get in the future. And perhaps that's something that clubs are looking at and thinking, um, you know, we want 
we <laughs> there's probably a slightly erroneous idea that if you if you get like a, a British manager, then there's the potential for them to stay longer within uh, within the organisation is is higher. I don't know. I haven't done any work to to look if that's the case. Results are bad. You're going to get sacked to wherever you're from. So yeah, I think. It's 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 interesting. Um, we've seen tactically. I think British managers have been worse trained over the years, like significantly worse trained um, in the last decade than pretty much all of their continental counterparts. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't necessarily know why that is. I guess, I think it's partly because like the the English style of play had been very bad for a long time, and now um, you know, like in training, uh, you know, you learn from the guys that came before you, and if they were English, that is different. But now I think that's that's you know starting to change pretty significantly. England has a much better eye on you know what matters, and there's just so much money in and around the the Premier League and the English game in general that they you know they should be able to to provide better tactical training. Uh, but I think that that that's been one of the weaknesses, and we'll see if that is changing or not. Lampard's a good example actually, because like we we still don't really know. Like what? 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 What kind of manager do we feel Lampard is? I, I'm, I'm not sure that Chelsea have got quite got an identity ap- apart from that they're you know roughly the sum of their parts, which is quite good. I, I haven't watched them enough uh, to to make a strong op- opinion on this. I don't know. I'm not. I haven't seen anything about the place where people have felt that Chelsea have got a specific kind of, you know, strategies and tactics that you know kind of reflect well on Lampard but it's you know it's, it's interesting to see how how he progresses and they, but this is the thing also you know if if he, if he's successful and wins trophies almost by default through having good good players then pe- people regard him as you know a successful british manager i mean that's how it works but that doesn't well, necessarily mean he's a conceptual manager well, we don't know it's and, it's it works in most of ways. these bigger clubs what percentage of the players are are british yeah, well, that's quite true. It's not that high, I wouldn't have thought, is it? <laughs> it's like a third in, mm. in some of them, and and in some some cases even less, right? Yeah, and some of them they're, they're some of them they're just squad filler, aren't they? You know, they're just we need some British guys around the place. Hey, you guys over there, you know, <laughs> you'll get some League Cup minutes. That's another sort of funky element uh, about it. It's it's not necessarily the players that you have. Like you know, English may not be the easiest way to communicate with them. Yeah. So. All right. Um. Well, I mean, that was like Arsene Wenger had years of English and French players, right? And that was you know back when they were leading the way in in scooping up the best players from France and bringing them over. Like that was part of the success story. Uh, okay. So next question: In your experience with clubs, have you seen a new sponsor try to push a club? For a big name signing for commercial purposes, i.e., uh, Liverpool and Nike or something like that, uh, I, I use this as an excuse to tell the Vandervaart story. Um, so after I left Brentford, um, they saw or not Brentford, Brentford and Michelin, uh, Michelin signed Raphael Vandervaart. I was like, "What the hell is this? <laughs> like, guys, what's going on here?" And the story was they had uh, a backer. Um, like an investor that wanted to contribute basically enough money for them to to sign Raphael Vandervaart at like basically break even for the club, and they wanted to to you know make this guy happy. Now this is a story that I heard. I I don't know that it's guaranteed, but I'm sitting there. I'm like, man, this is dumb. Like this is just like spectacularly dumb. And you know there are better players that should be around here. And even if it's like financially break even, it's just a bad idea. Like you're gonna take Vandervaart's gonna take some of the squad space that would go to like one of the good young players. And I think in this case it was uh, uh, Christopher uh, Christopher Olsen, a former Arsenal kid who we thought was like really really good, and he just like you know disappeared into. I think he went back to Sweden. Um, but yeah, so anyway, Vandervaart did not work out. Uh, he was happy to come to Denmark, though, because uh, his girlfriend at the time apparently was a very uh, a very good um, women's handball player, and he, he was able to be closer to her, but he's not in particularly good shape and wasn't you know, that interested and eventually got frustrated about not playing, et cetera, et cetera. And it all just like was a very important learning experience, I believe, for the club in that, oh, yeah, this is really dumb, and minutes are a resource that we need to use as well, and he's blocking the pathway of these young players, and Michelin especially are good at producing young players that need pathways. So, yes, um, not a particularly... You know, not a sponsor like Nike, but certainly sponsors inside of the clubs, and this happens all the time. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I, I I can't really speak to towards the kind of sponsor idea, but certainly the you know club chairman or club owner or club investor or club person that's been around the club, you know, all around the world, like trying to 
trying to sign lucrative players of you know various age aging properties just to kind of you know have their nice shiny toy kind of thing i know it happens in a variety of countries uh just to, yeah, just to show off you know we got this guy it's normal yeah I mean, it's, that's the thing. It's easy, you know. We're here with our stats, trying to make everyone more efficient. It's easy to easy to forget that, like a lot of football clubs, it's you know entertainment first. You know, that's still part is huge part of it. Entertaining, you know, get the fans, get the bums on the seats, get the revenue in. You know, all these kind of aspects. It's uh, you can't call fans bums. <laughs> these people have to pay like really good money in order to get seats. There's, well, yes, maybe uh, that wasn't my intention. Okay. I, I hereby issue an apology. That's my dad joke. To uh, bums on the seats. Anyway, all right. Of the managerial sackings in the PL this year, which were actually good decisions? All of them. And I think they're only. Well, there's one that's an open question, right? Oh, no. All right. So Pochettino, yep. we both agree on. Emery, we think like lasted way too long. Uh, Silva. I, mean, I think it was probably time, yeah. despite the numbers. Where did they finish last season? I think because they would they ended up in the <clears throat> relegation places. I think just when he was just when he was sacked. Um, let me just quickly check last season because it's just they haven't end up eighth, fifty four points. They basically kind of like won fifteen games, lost fourteen games. It's it's not really good enough. I don't. I guess it. Well, I guess it's just about if, if any further down, and you'd feel like you. It, he probably didn't do good well enough last season, and obviously this season was a step in the wrong direction. Despite their metrics looking okay, um, yeah, and they had the best goal difference outside of the big six. You know, they, I mean, they were absolutely fine last year, but at some point, kind of behind the scenes, you don't know what's going on. Schedule's about to burn them as well. They, they've literally walked into a schedule right right now, and obviously they beat Chelsea at the weekend. So big dunkers, cocked a snook at that. <laughs> Say that again, and um, yeah, so. <laughs> But that's the thing. We can talk about metrics that we like. I think what for a good example here, because like when uh, Gracia got sacked at the start of the season after eight games and their metrics looked okay, even though they hadn't barely got any points, it was like okay, yeah, but long term, like 2019, his metrics they're not good. They're actually like they've gone backwards. Uh, so even though we have got like a small sample at the start of this season, and the thing is, like, there comes a point where met. You know, we of course we want to talk about process and we want to think about process, and that's you know that's why Pochettino and Emery went because like the process wasn't there and the results eventually caught up. You know, it took time, but mm-hmm. it really you know it caught up, and you know you you've got to blend the whole things. But eventually, there's a point where you know results. If results are just that bad, then you know the chairman chairman just won't put up with it. You know, when when especially when fans stop turning up, or, you know, attendance well, is going these these kind of things. Or relegation. If you're looms. a bubble club if you're a bubble club like sort of on the edge of the Premier League, like that you get scared faster, right? And like, you know, that's it's like, it's like so much revenue. And you go down to the championship and the championship is hard now. Like genuinely a very difficult league if you go down there to get back up. And so, yeah, I mean, they they would just love to not go down, and and that's kind of like the permanent Crystal Palace. <laughs> it's, it's like what they they exist in, right? Like, just if we never go down, then the club is successful, which is a really weird existence. But you know, as as an owner of that club, like you you're perfectly happy with that, and I don't know. Yeah, I mean, teams teams in the bottom half of the Championship right now that have been in the Premiership recently, uh, you know, Hull, uh, Huddersfield, Middlesbrough, Stoke. Wigan wasn't that long ago. Well, they they've gone up and down since then. But you know, there's and then you know you've got Swansea in eleventh, uh, Cardiff in eighth at the moment. You know, there's, there's littered for West Brom. You know, who hoped hoped to come straight back up last season, they didn't. You know, they look like they're really well set this season. Um, you know, Fulham will have gone into this season thinking like, yeah, we'll get straight back up, and they're currently ten points off. Um, Automatic promotion. So yeah, I, I completely understand when when the trapdoor looms that you know. So especially for a team like Watford, and then um, Kike Flores only came and he won one out of ten games. I mean, what what do you say to that? It's, it's hasn't solved their problem basically. So I can understand. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you, and uh, it makes sense. So I don't think that these are bad. I think we're seeing like mostly pretty good decisions, which is unusual. Uh, again, I think. Teams are getting smarter, and, and their process, especially in England, is getting a little bit better. Uh, question for you here. Can Tottenham stage a second half of the season resurgence? The answer is obviously yes, although um, I'm comically following the Mourinho uh, 
the Mourinho, small sample Mourinho era, and they've they've uh, they've got they're very close to putting their expected goals into credit. They were basically like minus quarter of a goal, I think, when per game when Pot got sacked, and uh, I can't remember what they are now, but it's it's under like point one. Couple more good games, one more good, two more good games, and they'll be in credit. So. It's interesting how far we've got. Man, I mean, Man United. I don't think we, we had some Man United questions. I don't think we're going to cover them. I was just about to get here. Hang on. So, James, uh, it was now time for the segment of the show where we talk about the team that's in fifth in the Premier League, <laughs> like we do every week. Who's in fifth it's this week? It's in Man United, Ted. <laughs> it is. Although I had a brief moment of panic before we did this when I looked over the weekend to, like, you know, follow up on this this ongoing. <laughs> Uh, bit that we do and I was like shit is it Newcastle now please don't let it be Newcastle <laughs> but no Newcastle are merely two points back <laughs> are they really oh my god yes yeah you had lots of questions we, we, you haven't highlighted them but we did you did have does Steve Bruce possess Dyshean qualities is Steve Bruce the new Sean Dyche and Newcastle WTF we're all sure, why not? We're all questions. So yeah, well, maybe we'll come back to that where when, when their metrics of uh, when their results have caught up with their metrics at some point. But yeah, Man United, Man United are fascinating now because uh, I've followed them quite closely this season and they've been quite bad. Um, and then they've gone and walked <laughs> into these couple of. The thing is, their defence has been quite solid, but they've struggled up front. Obviously, you look at their you look at their attack, and it's like right, okay, you got Martial and Rashford. Rashford's played a lot. Martial's been in and out with injuries and stuff, um, and then James has come in and he's been okay. But you know, the midfield doesn't look strong. Pog has been out a lot, and you you think, well, the defence has been quite good. And then the funny thing is, they beat Tottenham and they beat. Um, Man, see, I think they had a penalty in each game, so, and obviously both, both matches finished two-one. And the funny—they've th- had like a billion penalties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they really have. The funny thing about Man United is, like, if you kind of look at the, the, their profile and the, you know the way that their defense is quite solid, if Man United can score two goals in a game, then there's a—I think there's a reasonable chance that they can not concede two goals, and therefore. Hey presto, we have a two, you know, we have a win, and the problem they've spent most of the season having is like scoring two goals in a game, and so two of their, you know, tougher games, uh, you know, probably a little bit motivated to go and stick one on, over on Mourinho, and obviously the derby's a derby, and the thing is they they see a lot of shots against uh, Man City, and you know Man City are having a bit of a funny little relationship with the uh, with finishing at both ends, I think uh, to some degree recently certainly at the in their defense and yeah and suddenly they've got two wins they're in fifth and you think like okay have they got something to build on they probably they probably have because the metrics have kind of inclined that man united aren't that bad and now they're in a position where they're not that far behind chelsea who are continuing to not kind of you know uh, a couple of defeats in a row i think is it two or three they've lost in a row? Oh, three out of four they've lost chelsea so they've had a little wobble and it's meant that it's five points back to man united wolves six to tottenham yeah a bit of bad luck in involved in those a bit of yeah. you know possibly tiredness you know they they didn't have a transfer <laughs> window they've got a bit a potentially a little bit smaller squad than they might go into they've had a lot of games um and then they're getting into the meat grinder period so like we'll see how that goes but also like you know not the easiest schedule um there as well um <clears throat> with united i don't know like we'll see um so somebody quoted Kara, uh jim Carragher, who i love i think Carragher's actually like one of the the pretty good guys in football and, and pretty bright and switched on um as saying like man united have as good a, of a front line as as liverpool and i was like but as, as much as like I have optimism for like where Martial and Rashford should be uh, on a weekly basis if they're playing for like an elite team, I mean, who's the third? Yeah, that was my question. I saw that. Like, are, are we importing Lukaku back to to Man United there for a second? And then the other one is: Are we really trying to suggest that these guys are like the same quality as uh, Salah and Mane? Yeah, I mean, his, like, his that, point was that they were inconsistent, wasn't it? I'm 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 a bit enamoured with Rashford Rashford at the moment because I watched both. Well, I think I only watched the first half of uh, Man United Man City and I watched all of Tottenham Man, Man United and he was just a fucking menace throughout. Honestly, he, he was really. He's good. It was you know, you've always got that with his free kicks and stuff. You've always got this. I've always got this association that like Rashford is thinks he's going to be Ronaldo. And that's what's that. and you can understand why someone with his kind of talents might might have an aspiration in that direction. 
And uh, but it really felt like he was like you know driving into the box, winning winning penalties, uh, being able to ding a ball from you know pretty much anywhere. Which he, he can, his shot quality can be a little bit woeful at times. But I don't know. He was just every time he got the ball and like advanced on on either of those teams' defenses, he just felt like he was he could make something happen. He just I know this is classic, just you know, eye test stuff. But you know, we look at his metrics. Um, they were quite quiet in the start of the season. Grace put out his regular kind of radars from early in the season and after and since. And like, since he's looked really strong. And when he, when when Man United had that really good spell when Solskjaer first went there, you know, he was he was up at like four shots a game, looking like he was you know turning into a kind of a striker's striker at that point. It was really quite interesting. He just turned 22 as yeah, well. Yeah, this is it. I, Perfect look, age, I, really. I, I think he's the real deal, and I think Martial has been the real deal, but also had some trouble with managers who he played for and injuries as well. So like, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, should we... Oh, hang on. Before we move on from the Premier League, here's a funny one. The Warlock, Sean Dyche. Current goal difference, minus eight. So, like, goal difference of, like, minus half a goal a game. What is his expected goals? They were quite good earlier, weren't they? I don't know. <laughs> they were, weren't they? I mean, is he getting, is he getting stitched up here by... Uh, this is it. The numbers, so up the until numbers this, have no lie. Up until, like a, up until they got tonked by Tottenham, I think they were up at, like, 0. 0.20 in our XG model. Oh, yeah. They're still at, like, 0. 0.06. Yeah, yeah, it's and, and up until this past weekend, they were, like, above Arsenal in expected goals, which, yeah. I was joking around no, they about still are. You know, they Arsenal. still are. That's amazing. But they've, yeah. Yeah, they've, so it's a, it's a funny thing. <clears throat> oh, Tottenham, oh, I'm just looking at our chart. Oh, non-penalty expected. Yeah, oh, non-penalty expected goal difference. Tottenham are in credit. Yes. Come on, my boys. Finally. So yes, the 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 magic uh, seems to have fizzled just a little bit for Sean Dyche. His teams are playing better football than they have in almost any year recently, at least according to the expected goals. <laughs> but but uh, minus eight in the goal difference. I'm like, yeah, okay, here we go. Uh, moving right along, is Nabiketa Nabiketa again? Well, that's been that's that's genuinely interesting, isn't it? Because. Um... You know, he's had two games back, I think. I'm not sure. He's been injured, isn't he? He's been, he had a couple of substitute appearances early in the season, and then we've barely seen him because Klopp's rolled with a fairly consistent 11, and Cater hasn't been part of it. And then he's come in, looked brilliant at the weekend, had another good game last night. And um, Player of the match, both games. Yeah, Player yeah, yeah. I think there's, there's a... There's a there's a quite a side to this that, you know, because I do these little write-ups for the Anfield rap, so I'm quite... I'm probably more... Like clued up, and everyone follows Liverpool to some degree. I'm probably quite more clued up on their numbers than a lot of people. Um, when he when he got in the team in about April, I think he played about four matches in a row in April. And via our like kind of pressure events, and and we record kind of like Gagan presses, counter presses. Uh, he he really stood out. Um, uh, he he was like leading the team for the pressure events, and a high volume of them were counter presses. And this is you know what we're kind of thinking. Well, what is Naby Keita though? We look at him at the weekend, he leads the team for pressures, he leads the team for counter pressures again. He hasn't been in the team since. But I remember saying uh, saying to Neil, who runs runs the Anfield Rap back then, saying, like, you know, we've got a small sample, it's only a few games, but this looks like the player that, you know, everyone hoped that he'd be at, at you know, for Liverpool. And he's obviously barely played since comes back. He's he's now this is the whole point of Cater, isn't it? you've you've got Elite defensive work from a midfielder, plus like attacking volume, attack you know goals and you called Rashford, <clears throat> you called Rashford a menace. Like Navigator is a menace, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Like he's just he's just so quick too. Like that burst for his defensive output, uh, but also able to to really progress the ball and, and whatever. It's nice to see him uh, being healthy, uh, especially at his old age. Uh, that some. Uh, allegedly analytical moron uh, allegedly was much older older than he was last year very very stupid argument on on uh, on Twitter but uh, it's lovely to see Naby do well and I just hope he stays healthy and obviously Liverpool fans do too well this is it and it's a, I, I think it's fascinating because the way Liverpool set up with their um, you know the midfield and fullbacks and such I think there's only room really in mid- Liverpool's th- midfield three as long as you know, as long as they're playing Trent and they're not playing Gomez, there's only room in Liverpool's midfield three for one guy to kind of like be the the guy that pushes up. Um, so one way of solving that is to stick in, say, Oxley Chamberlain in the band of the front three, 
yeah. so you don't or Shakiri or whatever it is, which they have they rotated quite well this week. Uh and the other way to solve that is um well I mean Fabinho's been injured. So Henderson drops back into the kind of like six role. Uh you have Vinealdum doing his normal kind of like pairing up with um Robertson on the left and then you maybe put Cater on the right of those three. I'm not sure if that's where he played um last night. I mean, so a season and a half ago, or a summer and a half ago I guess, um we were we were talking about this team and the squad and Naby was finally coming in and Fabinho was there and Ox was there. And I was talking a little bit about potentially, you know, transitioning some of those older midfielders into these guys. And one of the reasons why I thought Liverpool would be particularly good and particularly problematic to play against at that point is because everybody is so damn fast. And like those guys just, they are like all of them have extreme levels of pace that they brought in. So like Fabinho and, and Keita, I think are, are probably the toughest two to play against if they're healthy and if they're able to, to settle. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, Liverpool have some really good problems in that they've, they're able to cycle, they're able to rotate. They need to rotate because they've got the, the most insane schedule imaginable. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, uh, but yes, they, they, they have that level of depth this year, especially. Um, all right. So should we move on? Um, you go ahead and ask the next one. What's the next one? What is a simple, quick data visualization that coaches have been responsive to in preparing for an upcoming opponent? So you've actually worked with a number of clubs um, over the last year and a half too. Like, what do you what do you think about this? We got this really simple, like you know, corners thing that we do. We just like show where locations of corners go. I quite like it because I think you can like refine to like last few. Get what what what's the team been doing recently? Just to get an idea of like where they're going. And a lot of the times you'll look at you'll look at a club and it'll be like, okay, they take corners, big deal. And then occasionally you'll just land on one and it'll be like, right, near every single corner they've taken from the right side in the last six weeks has basically gone to the near post and it's like that's interesting <laughs> it's the crispest viz that we do it's the dumbest yeah. one it's the simplest one i developed it way back with the set piece program and it's just literally a dot plot that tells you where teams are tending to aim uh their first balls and it doesn't matter who gets to it you still see kind of the trajectory of the ball and stuff like that and i yeah you know, it just tells you kind of what data can do for you and shortening your analysis cycles which is a big deal the other one is the passing networks like the passing networks like often get a little slept on or overlooked but they're super valuable and they they have a lot of information in there and the coaches are pretty responsive to it because they're looking for this type of stuff. Like, who who are the valuable links over, like, the last five to ten games? Uh, more valuable than others, potentially. Which center back do we want to close down regularly because they're the one that really opened play better in a more dangerous way? Like, these are all yeah, valuable I, questions uh, that, that you know, the data teases out almost immediately. I agree. Yeah, I agree with them. I, was, I wasn't a bigger, bigger fan of them to, to start with. And then like, I started kind of, like, using them. And I, they are an abstraction of, of, of sorts. But I think you get an idea about, like, shape more. You know, formations are a bane of my life, to be honest. I think they, they frustrate me because, you know, a, a sim- simply calling a formation, you know, three numbers, a four, three, three is so understating what you're actually looking at it's it doesn't cover it in any you know respect and you know the part the passing networks do give you a kind of like uh just just a window into like you know which which one of the midfields is midfielders is slightly pushing forward so like, this is what i say about liverpool like quite frequently you'll see you'll see like fabinho and um wijnaldum will kind of like basically their most of their passes will be on like on a sim- similar kind of uh kind of what are the X coordinate like high up, high up the pitch kind of thing, and then you'll see Henderson or you know pushing slightly forward, or you'll see Rob, Robertson and uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold like really quite high up. You'll see Firmino coming. They look up. almost like midfielders. Yeah, they're very much too. You'll see you'll see Firmino drop back in at some games, not every game. You'll see Salah really high up at some games, but not all games. And there's yeah. just like you say, if you, if you compare like a variety of games a team plays, you do get a kind of idea as to, to like how they're setting up and you know the, the linkages between. Um, passes and stuff it's it's interesting though like from a yeah from a coach perspective they're not always interested in the sort i'd say they generally aren't necessarily interested in the same things that us people that play with data and make visualizations are interested in because uh you know the the the, the way they're looking at the game or the way they're kind of like just trying to uh, garnish information is just subtly different from you know the kind of like um, you know, more of a remote analyst analysis role. The kind of like more kind of broader ideas that uh, we often kind of look at. Um, so yeah, it's, but it, Tom, it's always different. Tom Lawrence developed. Tom De- Lawrence developed our our passing networks, and they're gorgeous. Like they're really really attractive. 
um, that he's, he's got this beautiful layer of um, XG chain inside of it. And then you can use ball progression type stuff or, or whatever you want to. In that, I'm not sure it's exactly perfect, but you can use like pass progression uh, as a value layer for the coloring inside of it. But he's the one that developed those and they're gorgeous. But the fact of the matter is exactly what you're saying. Coaches care about practicality and analysts care about practicality. So like what is going to teach me a little bit about what's happening and where they're trying to defend and, and things like that. That's a different type of perspective than the fans who go nuts for different types of visualizations and they want the sexy ones and the attractive ones and you know the comparative ones for different players which is you know a different way of looking at the game and, and you know especially for recruitment still valuable but it's not it's not the same uh, i misspoke earlier it's not that um uh, the fullbacks look like uh, midfielders they actually look like attacking midfielders in many cases in Liverpool's game where they're like the next line of players directly after the the forward line and you're like huh that's unusual <laughs> yeah this is this is it. It, it it's not this, I mean what was you what did you say yesterday about Liverpool that they took some contention that they were they reminds you of, a, <laughs> reminds you of a, a, early Mourinho teams with some set pieces added on top but I think I I, said, I I didn't necessarily say early. I said the elite right, Mourinho yeah. teams plus set pieces. I think added. the demarcation between like defense and attack is is clear. And I think Leicester are doing something quite so, somewhat similar, not the same at all, but like somewhat similar in, in regards that like you know these guys are the ones that we empower to attack, and these guys are the ones that we don't empower to attack, and that, that kind of like. You know, there's probably like one one of Liverpool's midfielders that maybe kind of like transcends between the two. You know, the other ones are involved in build-up rather than that. You know, actually, the the, the business end of things and the, the you know the centre backs keep it kind of tight. That made it made, made it's it's a completely different formation, I think. But it maybe it threw me back to like kind of the. I remember Brazil used to play some kind of like four-two-two-two kind of thing, which I guess I think Leipzig and stuff. Search and Salzburg have played at times, uh, you know, a version of. Uh, but but just that box, there was a fashion. There was a fashion for the two the two defensive midfielders, and two defensive midfielders and two centre backs, just as being like the defence and full marauding fullbacks. You know, early in the century. So, yeah, formations man, they 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 are so fluid and so changeable. But yeah, it's. <laughs> It's always a challenge to kind of get into it and try really try and understand it beyond beyond just the numbers, so to say. If possible, and you could collect accurate data covering the last fifty years, would it be worth it, or has the game changed too much for it to be useful? Mm, what do you think? I'd love it. I mean, give me give me data for the last fifty years. Brilliant. This is great fun. I, I I think it's super valuable. Like you get you get so much information about uh, the best players when they were younger and how the game has changed. And I think we're one of the few companies in the world that has done some like strong longitudinal analysis of yeah. of some competition since 1996. Uh, so we went back and collected some of that for like a special project. Uh, it's not a public project, but it's like super cool. We can talk loosely um, about it, I think, without giving any detail. We, as in, don't, as in, don't get us in trouble. No, no, I'm not going to get us in trouble. But I think, yeah, just just the in, it's interesting how like some some clear trends do come through as in regards the formations was one actually because like you know. You get back to the 90s and you had, did have lots of kind of like three centre backs uh, the sweeper as a concept was, was still kind of like uh, lingering on from you know the 80s and 90s Italian teams that kind of uh, built built up through that way so yeah and the fact that you, I think you can dribble more in the in the centre of the pitch there I've, I've said this before I'm sure um, English football spent years looking for a Paul Gascoigne figure and that, that you just can't move through the centre of a football pitch uh, at elite level like you could back in Gascoigne's day so no it's true and and football like definitely has changed but like seeing those eras is really cool and having more information about how to adjust for era is cool as well and uh, seeing like how the analytics stuff is starting to change current football um, you know, since like 2010 onward which is when mostly the data becomes valuable we can talk quite freely about it because we collected Man United's um, uh, couple of games from Man United's 99 season and that it was really interesting how many long balls there were in that game um, in midfield like Beckham just pinging it around all over the place and the shot maps for the for the game were you know a lot of shots there were a lot of shots taken in that game and a lot of them were kind of low quality pings from here there and everywhere and it, it just looks different to most shot maps that you see now like I think you know 
somewhere along this decade, can't think what happened, uh, people got the idea that you <laughs> might want to shoot from like better locations, right? You know, as a you know skew in that direction, not only, but you know, just move a little bit in that direction. And teams do that more often, and we're seeing that come through. Uh, and it was just so very different from you know the couple of games that we collected from Man United's you know elite team of twenty years ago. So. Yeah. And that longitudinal analysis is just incredibly valuable to start to learn about players and aging and what they do in different roles and places and stuff like that. And the only only place that kind of exists to, for people to go back in public side is the Messi Project that we put together. And as a byproduct of the Messi Project, you get an awful lot of information about you know Barcelona's core from kind of 2000. Because he he played so few matches in in the first season and and you know, not a ton in the second season, but like from that point onward, when he becomes a stalwart, you get basically all of nearly all of the Barcelona league matches for that period of time and everybody yeah. that played in them. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Oh, we should I should hint on this because we're gonna we're gonna um, put out the last transfer data. I think next week I'm organising it at the moment. Um, but I uh, said, have you looked at Messi's shot map this season? No. <laughs> If you've got a minute, Ted, have a look. He scored ten goals for an expected uh, expected. His expected goals this season, crap, point four, rubbish, terrible, worst season in a decade. His shot volume, same, like three point eight or something, three point nine per game, terrible, awful. Just the ten goals out of the three point seven I expected. <laughs> yeah, he's got ten goals. His expected goals assisted, I think, is as good as any season. Again, it's only like eight nine games that he's played, but he's got ten goals. He's, he's got four goals out of twelve shots from set pieces. Yeah, and he's got he's got seven <laughs> from outside the box. This is you know the crazy. I think it's twelve thirteen is the crazy season where he scored like. Uh, yeah, I, I I filtered it so it's like 15 yards or up, and his his conversion rate from like 15 yards up was would have ranked third of all strikers last season. <laughs> and I've taken out all his, all the good shots going. He's he's having a season like that at the moment. It's like seven goals outside. His the box. two best shots, his two best chances on his on his map, which is basically direct center at the six, mm. 55 percent and 48 percent. Are like the two shots that he hasn't scored. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is if he hadn't, yeah, if he hadn't scored, you know, if he wasn't messy, and he hadn't scored seven goals from outside the box. And I think, believe, I think last season, last season he led, probably led Europe. I definitely led the league. I think he got nine. Possibly season four, he got eight, and he's already got seven this season. So it's crazy. Yeah, if 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 he wasn't scoring, if he hadn't scored three or four free kicks, and hadn't scored three from outside the box, you'd be quite critical of him. You'd be like. This isn't very good. You're not shooting from good locations, mate. But he's an alien. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it. no one. No one shoots like he does. He he is the most incredible person that we've ever seen in this it's way. Fun. Could there be other ones that existed before? Quite possibly. Yeah, exactly. That's the, the thing. The weight of data that Messi has put together that just breaks everything. And like, oh well, you know, skill doesn't have that big of an impact overall on the attacking side of expected goals model. It has some. Except for Messi, and it's literally just except for him. It would be so not. I mean, you know, I think everyone's kind of well aware that the game is much faster than it was. You know, back in the old days, when the the pundit class were playing, and you know, to men were men and all that kind of crap. But it would be so great to have like like strong data arguments, so you could actually say like, yeah, keepers were terrible back then, or yeah, and, you know, just 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 be able to confidently say that. Uh, like you know, with a huge data argument, like throughout the ages of what was good and what was bad in various eras, that would be fun. But it's not going to happen. There's no video, is there? Fifty years ago, video. Good luck with that. Yeah, and I would feel bad for like having the collectors collect that. That's pretty rough. I mean, the, I guess the World Cup video basically exists, but there probably yeah. isn't much else. Before. No, that's true. Uh, one last question that is a bit juicy, um, and I put it on because I I have a. Yeah, I have a, a, a take on this. So if the Football League put spots uh, for a B team up for sale, starting in League Two, no promotion allowed to the Premier League, how much would, should a top six side be prepared to bid for one? Now, this is actually pretty interesting. And I, I think when I work through, I've worked through this a few times in my head. Like we like to work through potential competition changes as like experiments and ideas for like how to game things. And I really like the economics idea of incentivizing stuff. Um, and I think that, <clears throat> you know, if they're bidding for it, it helps compensate the lower league clubs to, you know, for losing the spots or whatever. But like the question is like, how far down does it go? Because if you look at it, there's probably, there's not just like 20 
20 teams that would want, you know, potentially a B team spot, like, you know, would Leeds potentially want that? Would Aston Villa would like the, the you know, the past giants want it. Um, but the flip side is I hate this. <laughs> uh, I know how it works in other, other countries and I know why it works that way, but I feel like there's such a strong tradition of, um, you know, the English football league itself not the Premier League, but the English Football League and all those teams that exist there and even coming up through the conference. And the more that I've lived here and the more I, I learn about it, like I really have a visceral anti-response to this type of concept for England. Yeah. Other places, not so much, but for England, I fucking hate it's it. Totally, it's, well, yeah, I mean, like if, if, if this kind of thing ever came through, I mean, I think there was enough kind of uh, moaning about when the, the U23 teams entered the... Um, what was it? I can't remember what the cup. Johnstone Pete Trophy, yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. the hell it is, <laughs> and and, it, and routinely didn't do very well at it. But um, yeah, it's it, it, culturally it's just a complete non-starter. So you know, once you kind of like accept that, uh, then yeah, it becomes entirely theoretical. I think I don't I, I don't know if I could put a value on it. To be honest, it's um, it's really quite hard. Uh, I, I don't. The, the thing is, like, quite often when clubs change hands and like down the down the league structure, it's, it's when they're in big trouble. So like, what's what's the value of a club? It's more a value of someone taking taking you know a problem off someone's hands in some degree. Uh, I, yeah, I, in some cases, I haven't absolutely. True. I haven't actually got you know a window into like you know how much would you know an average league two club cost. I've, I've got no idea. So uh, it's not not an area that I know much about. I think. The answer to that question depends on the real estate involved. Uh, so a lot of a lot of club deals end up being you know partial real estate deals based on the training ground and the the place where they play their their matches and do they own the stadium? Is it owned by the council? Like there's all sorts of strings attached to things, um, and the budgets are very different too. Um, it does lead into so like we're actually not going to answer the question because like both of us I think uh, it's kind of antithetical to how we think football operates or should operate in this country, uh, which is not necessarily a critique of how it operates elsewhere but it's just a, a kind of understanding of the history and how how strongly fans like have opinions about it and i guess this ties a little bit back into like the the euro super league which we also kind of hate largely because we think that the fan reaction would be quite terrible in most cases uh should that type of thing start but there's a there was a tweet that came out i think earlier today about chesterfield um, and I think uh, Price of Progress or whatever, Keir Maguire's account retweeted it. Basically how, how Chesterfield are like creeping down and down and down further into the leagues. Uh, I think they're now in um, National League, which is traditionally English conference, uh, maybe even Conference North. But um, <clears throat> and, and it's about, you know, why won't the Football League, uh, you know, enforce sustainability? And I think there are two very strong uh, sides to this whole argument, which is that First of all, yes, we don't want to see teams and fans suffer, right? Um, but the much more important thing here is this is a competitive endeavor and and you want teams to compete. And if, if your team is suffering, that means somebody else's team is doing better. And it sucks when, you know, you're you're the lovable losers or whatever and, you know, you, you're invested in your team. That's fine. But, like, there's this other thing where, like, you know, somebody comes and takes a problem off somebody's hand, invests in the club sustainably, uh, potentially or not. But, like, they're putting a lot of money into it. And and now you've got a bit of a dream, right? And you want the club to, to then go up. The danger becomes at the point that, you know, the existence is challenged. And Barry is one of those. And there are a number of, of you know, I think Macclesfield has not been paying their players uh, and it's not just in England, it's all over the place. Like this is, again, businesses go out of business on a regular basis. They die for like natural causes. It's very Darwinian. B business especially is, you know, survive and thrive or, you know, many times wither away and die. Football is a much more, um, you know, there's there's a society element to it and you don't want them to, to disappear completely. But, you know, again, it's it's competitive. And at the end of the day, you know, you want new owners to be able to come in and you know, refurbish these clubs in many cases, which is not lend itself to sustainability. If you want to redo the facilities, if you want to potentially spend a bit more money on players to try and move them up in the league where, you know, you want to take on that challenge, that's great. You need to keep the, the bad owners out and as best you can. And you need to, you know, not have 
people that have criminal pasts uh, be allowed to to invest in and purchase clubs. But I think that you know there's this element that's missing that says that oh, the football league must enforce sustainability. But there are plenty of owners that want to throw money at it and dramatically improve their football leagues or football clubs' fortunes from the lowest levels on up. And you know, there's there's a strong element of, of capitalist society that says they should be able to do that, and fans are happy to see that that happen. So I don't know how you balance those. Yeah, no, I think you've covered it up pretty well there. It's a, it is a difficult difficult task to kind of balance, and um, yeah, so Man United U23 aren't going to be lining up in League Two anytime soon, by the sounds of it. I think yeah, I mean that that's you know that's that's the right way to go yeah like you say like i think germany and spain have um both got a kind of like long history of like this kind of integration and you know it makes it makes sense for them and so some of their league structures are slightly different but i think yeah the um the fact that um to most intents and purposes the british league structure is professional a really long way down and i think in these other countries it's more kind of like pro am isn't it where the, these youth youth teams are uh involved so that is a little bit you know that's actually helping those teams are helping the kind of sustainability of those leagues a little bit more whereas yeah english football is almost almost unique in having such a long structure i think it probably is unique okay yeah and i think the rise of the women's leagues also kind of contributes to increased fan engagement and and football in in the uk overall i just especially in england feels really healthy like you've got more things that are happening that are positive where, you know, again, there, there are just going to be some clubs that, that struggle and and have problems. But that's always been the case. I think we just know more about them and there's more like fan outrage or whatever. But you know, there, there's no way to, to perfectly balance this so that no club is ever in danger of you know going down into the lower leagues because they get bad because they have bad ownership. It's just a natural sort of thing that happens. And you hope that it doesn't. And you hope that if it does happen, then somebody that has some money that that knows how to run these things correctly comes in and and saves them. Yeah, I mean, fit and proper owners is, is a thing, you know, kind of, and you hope that's that's works, but probably better than it has in the past. But um, you know, I, I don't I don't think people in football are unaware of these issues and you know trying trying to kind of uh, solve them as best they can. But as you say, you know, he's turning down investments tough. So you know, <laughs> someone turns up with uh, with what seems like. R- reliable backing and a plan for a club then you often look favorably on and maybe that's not always works out all right should we just say happy holidays to everybody happy holidays happy christmas whatever it is yeah aye okay well thank you for listening (laughs) once again uh james may or may not be back with a podcast with someone else but we'll see yeah i've got i mean i'm I'm off work for so i've got plenty of time for podcast and frippery and whatever over christmas so you never know and in the meantime enjoy all of the football festivities it's been great uh talking to you guys this year thank you for listening to us and uh, we hope to keep doing cool stuff into the new year as well goodbye cheers boy